0: I titled the message today, The Church as We Should Know It. So, this is what we ought to be. So, when I, when I preach this message, what I'm trying to do here is by using the Word of God and contextualizing it and making application for us, is to ultimately say, Edgewater, this is our goal. Okay? As we follow Jesus, this, this is the goal. This is the kind of church that we ought to be. This is what we ought to look like to one another and to the world around us who's watching us. So you'll recall last week we began the book of Philippians and we, we said two basic things. The, the first thing we talked about was, was that Paul was saying, I'm thanking God for what He's done in your lives. And he, he's, he's encouraging them and reminding them, just look around. right? You're, you've got reasons to be discouraged. I think he's writing to a church that probably was somewhat discouraged because there was there was some conflict, there was some upheaval. He's in prison, so he's their spiritual leader and he's been... Not only you know, remove from them, but in a shameful way that that reflects on them right so there's these reasons for them to be discouraged and he's saying don't be discouraged don't 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 be identified with your circumstances. be identified with who you are in Christ Jesus and look around and and see what he's doing it's a remarkable thing that he's birthed a church in this place, this city of Philippi, where there was no Really no witness for God. There wasn't even a synagogue in that place. There weren't even enough Jewish people in this city to, to form a synagogue, let alone any believers in this city. And yet now there's a church and it's growing. And Paul's saying, this is a miracle of God. Look what he's doing. And look at each other and rejoice in how he's, he's working specifically in all of you the unity that, that he is, is forming in you, this family that he's making, and the opportunities to see God at work in all of us. It's a beautiful thing. So he's, he's pointing them backwards, right? Look at what he's done. Look at what God's done. He's, he's sort of pointing them sideways. Look around you and see what he's doing now. But now in the next couple of verses, verses 9 through 11, I think he's sort of looking forward and saying, and, and let's, let's consider continually what God will keep doing in you. So it's like, a, I, I have football on my mind because I was at a football game yesterday and I'm, I'm thinking about football later today, it's Sunday, right? I'm thinking about a locker room scenario, it's halftime. And a coach, a good coach, is going to say to his team, look at what 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 you've done, look at what's happened so far, right? He's going to talk about the first half, but but he's going to then, regardless of what happened in that half, point them forward at what the next half looks like, right? That's the goal of halftime. Readjust, move forward. Let's see what's next. I think that's what Paul's beginning to do here with the church. So look at the text again with me. We're looking at verses 9 through 11. And I, this is a prayer that Paul is praying for the Philippian church. This is a prayer we should be praying for ourselves away uh, as well and, and grabbing onto its emphasis as our own. Verse 9, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Where are we going from here? Paul wants the Philippian church to know that there are some essential elements here of what a joyful and unified church looks like. In other words, we could say there's some essential elements here of a healthy church. And he wants them to know these things and by God's power to become these things. Don't just know them, right? But become these things. And so again, I, I want to apply these same things to us as Edgewater. But we This is the church we need to, to continue to become for the glory of God. So as we go through these verses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight just a a few kind of main themes. And here's the first one. We will continually, if we're thinking about becoming the church God wants, we will continually strive to create an atmosphere of love whenever we gather together. Okay? We'll continuously strive to create an atmosphere of love whenever we gather together. And I want to be careful in saying that I know that by using the word create... Uh, I could make it sound like that, that comes from us. It doesn't come from us, right? We're not creating the atmosphere of love, but we're stepping into what God has initiated, right? So we have a responsibility. There's a responsibility on our part to live out the kind of love that God has called us to live out and that He has already given to us. And that's what I mean by us creating that atmosphere. We're participating in that. And I get that here when Paul says that he's praying that your love may abound still more and more, more and more. There's this continuation, right? Just keep growing in that. There's no cap on love. There's no cap on love, right? And what does it mean then to to be filled in this way? It means to be filled with Christ. The love of Christ. So what does that look like? Well, I think before we can talk about what it means to, to have this atmosphere of love, we, we have to define what love really is. And I think in, in, the, in the context of the modern church, this is probably a really necessary conversation. What does love really look like? What does it really look like? you you got to separate yourself a little bit from the sort of greeting card variety of love that we can so easily, you know, sadly think of. This... Uh, I had a friend a uh, long, long ago who used to use this phrase when he would talk about things that were cheesy and he would say, you know, ooey, gooey, rich and chewy love, right? That's, that's the kind of love we, we, that I'm thinking of. That we, we've got to step away from that. And yet it's so common to see ooey, gooey, rich and chewy sort of s- s- just inch deep love in church, right? We can come to church. I'll admit this. I can do this. You all have done this. We, we sort of paste the smile on, right? And we say things that just aren't really aren't really meant. It's just sort of what you do, right? Oh, hey, friends, you know? <laughs> just that, that che- like you know when you see it, right? Ugh, that just feels cheesy. Uh, that's, that's not the kind of love that Paul is encouraging here, right? He's, he's saying that's a complacent love. There's a there's a depth of love that I'm praying for in you. The kind that abounds. The kind that points back to Jesus, right? It's not the disingenuous kind of thing that people see through. It's the kind of love that God demonstrates towards us. He has demonstrated and continues to demonstrate, and we know from Romans 5:8 the depths of that kind of love. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love, right? It's going and meeting somebody at their their, their point of deepest need, regardless of their, their deserving of that love. We certainly didn't, right? While we were sinners, he gave of himself. He died for us. He loves us. Did he love us because we deserved it? No. Was there anything in it for him? Did he gain anything by loving us in that way? No. And that's the definition of real love. That's the definition of real love. That's the kind of love that, that has the power in it to transform lives. I want you to consider with me the Apostle John as an example. This is kind of moving away from Philippians for just a minute. But I, I, I think he's a great case study in what, what loving somebody looks like because John was used by God to write five of the books of the New Testament, and a a big part of the themes of John's writing are the subject of love. In fact, John is known as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. So love and John tend to often go hand in hand. So if you didn't know any better, you might think of John as sort of this really sensitive, lovey guy. And if you thought of him as sort of that sensitive, lovey guy, you you you'd be pretty wrong about that because his background tells us he was probably anything but that he was probably a pretty rough around the edges rough and tumble kind of guy john and his brother james when we meet them in scripture are presented to us as a couple of 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 you know rough fishermen these are guys that that grew up around the docks they probably grew up around a bunch of foul-mouthed sailors and I'm quite sure they were able to to hold their own in a scuffle or a brawl. And I say that because Jesus himself gave them a nickname, Sons of Thunder, right? You don't give a nickname like that to a couple of touchy-feely guys, right? You give a nickname like that to guys who probably are pretty loud and boisterous. And we see evidence of this tough love attitude of John in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56, when Jesus sends his disciples out... And he sends them out to do ministry and they go out. John goes out in a pair to a Samaritan village and is rejected. The Samaritans want nothing to do with the message. And so John turns to Jesus and he says, let's call down fire from heaven on this place. Right. Which in sort of modern vernacular is let's just let's toast these people. Right. That's his, this. is his. This is kind of who he was. So he's clearly a guy who had his fair share of rough edges Now, now, so where does love meet John? It's not coming from John initially. It comes from Jesus. And think about this. Jesus was able to look at John and see past those rough edges and see potential. Jesus began to love John. Maybe Jesus is called the disciple whom Jesus loved most because he was the disciple who needed love the most and I think he was able to write so much about love then because he received so much of it and he knew the life transforming power of that love firsthand and that's basically the story of all of your lives that's the story of my life right you're a person who has rough edges. And God has graciously in His Son reached down to you and shown you love. He saw potential in you that nobody else could see. <laughs> and He softens those rough edges by His grace. He, he, he removes those hard edges by His work on the cross to take your sin and put it to death and to give you a new heart and to make you a new person. You've received so much love. And then in the same way, God calls you now to love and to serve other people who are desperate for love. And there's going to be people like that all the time in our churches. And of course, outside of our churches. And what we need, what they need, what I need, what you need, is not some mushy, fuzzy, spineless ooze. You need meaty compassion. You need commitment. The kind of compassion and commitment that we see exhibited in Jesus Christ who looks past the rough edges and sees the potential. That's the kind of love God is calling us to demonstrate as a church. John 13 Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not an easy thing to love. It's not supposed to be. It involves sacrifice. It, it really means to place other needs above your own, which means humbling yourself. It will mean reaching out to people that you don't necessarily always want to reach out to, right? It's not easy. But the, 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 the wonderful truth of the Christian life is that we can always say, always, always say, God, I was that unlovable person and you have not withheld an ounce of love for me how could I not therefore reach out and love other people in that same way? And the more we understand, here's the good news, the more we understand the love of God, the less we see people as difficult to love and the more we see people as worthy of our love and we begin to truly love. And we've got to strive for that atmosphere of love in our church. I think we do that really well. But I also think sometimes we don't, right? So we've got to continually be praying, God, teach us to love. Remind us of the grace that you've shown to us. Teach us to love as you do. You say, well, how are we going to do that? What are some practical ways then that we can actually demonstrate that love for one another? Well, there's some, there's some tips here in the text as well. The second thing that we should be striving for is this, to be Christ-centered and Bible-directed in all things. So to let let Jesus Christ be at the center of what we do and let the Word of God shape and form all the, th- the things that we do, that's going to help ensure that the kind of love that we provide is not ooey-gooey, rich and chewy, but genuine, right? It's true. And I get that again from the text. As he's praying that they would grow in real knowledge and all discernment. I want you to love. I want you to abound in love and in real knowledge and discernment. It's interesting that he would follow up his prayer with abounding love, with a prayer for the increase of knowledge. If you think about other things that Paul has said, like in 1 Corinthians 8, when he he seems to almost pit those two ideas against each other. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up, right? How is it that he's saying, I want you to have both? Well, because that's exactly what he's saying. He wants us to have both. Knowledge puffs up when it's lacking love. And love builds up, but love without discernment or knowledge can turn into just as harmful a thing as knowledge without love. If I have knowledge but not love, I'm nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.2 The key is, have both, right? Love guides the knowledge that grows and functions within the framework of that love. So how do we learn to abound in love Well, again, we got to know what love is. And we find out what love is as we look to Scripture and we see love demonstrated in Christ and guided in our lives by God as He instructs us on how to love one another. So we want to clearly communicate, first and foremost, the person of Jesus Christ. That's that's how we'll ensure that we're being a loving church that's guided by real knowledge. Clearly communicate the person of Jesus Christ in all things. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So we abound in love when we make Jesus the unavoidable issue in everything that we do. Because again, when we focus on His love for us, it drives our love For others and that's a very important very important point this kind of Christ centered focus is so important in the church I was gonna say more now than ever but that's not true it's always always just really important it's really important I just think about our culture and our you know just the 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 understanding that people have of who Jesus is and I'm responding to that when I think maybe more now than ever, this is so important. What do people think about Jesus? If, if we're going to lift up the true Jesus, that all men would be drawn to Himself, what are we up against? What, what con- preconceived ideas do people have about who Jesus is? I would say it's, it's fair to say we live in a, in a generation of, of skeptics. Right? People are skeptical about Jesus. They're certainly skeptical about The church, they're certainly skeptical about religion. Religion as a whole, I think, is seen as as repressive. It's seen as irrelevant. So when Jesus says, I'm the only way to the Father. I'm the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Salvation is but by Christ alone. I don't think that message sells very well right now. At least not in our society and not in our culture. If you ask your friends or coworkers what they believe about Jesus and get beyond the he's a good teacher ask questions like what about his deity he that he he claims to be god what about his miracles what about the virgin birth my guess is most people would say uh, no right those kinds of things have come under question. Just, and, and I think even if they would engage that far with you about Jesus, maybe a lot of people just don't know anything about Jesus' story. So we can't assume, like maybe, maybe a couple of generations ago, we might have assumed more of a sort of general knowledge about Christ in our culture. We can't assume those kinds of things anymore. We've got to be very purposeful in our efforts to help people meet Jesus and to understand Him and to know Him as He really is. And that's why it's so important to lift Jesus up to be Christ-centered in everything. He's, He's the center of it all. Everything revolves around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do we know Him as He really is? You say, well, how do we make sure we do that? That's where we come back to the Word of God. The Bible is our foundation for really understanding and knowing God as He's revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. This is the real knowledge that Paul's praying for. I want you to know the real knowledge. I want you to have real discernment here. I want you to look at Jesus and know Him by how God has revealed Him through the Word. This word he says here, spiritual knowledge. It's epignosis. It's 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 this idea of... Uh, this true and infallible message that God has given to us. That's what I want you to know. To lift up Christ is to lift up the Word of God. Now, I want to ask you this, and I I hope you can answer this affirmatively. Have you noticed that that's a priority for us here at Edgewater? To be in the Word, to let the Word of God shape the things that we do. That's very intentional, okay? That's very intentional. So when we get to, when we get together on a Sunday morning, our sermons are we're just we're looking at Scripture and we're staying in the text, right? We do Gospel Life classes downstairs. You're, you're you're looking at Scripture together. Our children's ministry curriculum, the things that you're doing in your community groups, that's a very intentional thing to be centered around God's Word. But that's just the beginning step. Right. It's one thing to be in the Bible. Real knowledge is much more than just factual information about God from His Word. It's more than just an acknowledgement that the Bible is true and infallible, meaning there's, there's no errors in this thing. It's consistent. Real knowledge does something in us. Right. It actually begins to shape us and change us. It makes us more like Jesus. So we want to say, we want to lift up Jesus. That means we've got to be in the Word and we want to make sure that we're looking at who Jesus is, how God has revealed Him to us in the Word, and we're not done until we see the formation of Jesus in us. That's what it means to be Christ-centered and Bible-directed together. So if that's our foundation here at Edgewater, the fruit of that will be evident. The good news is that people are going to see jesus they're gonna you are gonna see jesus and other people by god's grace will see jesus too not just in the the texts that are constantly being spoken and taught and read and prayed over here but also in the lives of those whom that text is shaping to become more and more like who jesus is okay so that's a huge priority for us as a as a church and you might say, well, that's finding good, but, but for us as the average member, like what, what control do we have over that? Bill, you're the one that gets up in the pulpit every week. You're the one that, that opens up the Word. You're the one that you know, the elders are directing a lot of the ministry that's going on. What do we have to do with that as, as a priority? How do we make sure that that stays a priority? And I would say, well, you have absolutely a lot to do with that. As the membership of the church, it's important for you to, to recognize why that's so important and to demand it. To demand it. If I stop teaching God's Word, please, I'm saying this with sane mind now, I would be insane then. All right. So hear me with sane mind. If I stop teaching God's Word, fire me. <laughs> Value it that much. The Bible is our distinctive. Jesus is the center of it all. So Paul's saying, this is what I want you to abound in. Love one another. Grow in, in real knowledge. Real discernment. Thirdly, value an authentic... This is my, these are my kind of modern words. Authentic relational ministry over religion. And I get that when he says here, in order that you be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a sincerity, there's an authenticness, a th- authentic nature to the kind of relational ministry that he's praying for in them that goes way above religion. Authentic. I, I put that word on there. He uses the word sincere. And I want to qualify authentic because authentic is kind of a buzzword, Right? Authentic is a buzzword in, in, in Christianity. And to be honest with you, I, I usually I don't like it. I usually don't like it because it, it usually means something like, um, I think it can often mean something like being so real that we're content with our our sin and our ugliness. Like I think of authentic often being attached to things like blog posts where people are like, well, I love Jesus, but I still love to do this and that. And that's cool because I'm just being real. Just being real. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, not what, that's not what I mean by the word authentic. And that's certainly not what Paul means here. He uses this word sincere, which I've, I've used the word authentic. And here's the, here's the literal meaning of that. It means no hypocrisy. It's actually the opposite of what I just explained from, from a blog post who might say, I'm just being real. That's hypocritical. I love Jesus, but I'm content to live like I don't. That's hypocrisy. And that's what he's saying here. No, no hypocrisy. I'm praying that you wouldn't have that. I'm praying that you would have a, the kind of relationship with Jesus and in unity as a body and fellowship around the Word that holds up to the sunlight. That there's, a, there's a saying like that. You know, can you hold it up to the sunlight? It comes from, from the, the making of pottery. You know, when you make pottery, there's, there's often going to be cracks in a pottery, in a way that, that you can sort of hide the cracks is by filling the cracks with light, excuse me, with wax. But if, but if you know what you're doing, you hold that up to the, to the light, you see the light coming through the wax, you can see this isn't really, this isn't really a good piece of pottery. right? It's that same idea. Right? We can look good on the outside. That's, that, that's what religion can produce in us. We can look really good on the outside, but when held up to the light of Christ, does it hold up? Is it sincere? And Paul's saying, this is what I'm praying for, for the church. The kind of fruit that is, 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 is born out of love, that's, that's genuine. The kind of transformation that the Word brings about in your lives and the Christ-centeredness brings about, that's, that's genuine. It's not causing people to stumble because of its hypocrisy. And isn't that what hypocrisy does? There's a lot of people who are leaving the church. You know that. They're called, they're called more and more the nuns, right? There's, we do these, these polls and we say, how many people identify with this religion or that religion or whatever? And this group of nuns, I have no religious affiliation, is growing faster than any other group in our country. And most of the nuns are people who have left the church. Why? A lot of it's because of hypocrisy. This is where we see the big distinction between religion and true Christian love. Here's the difference. Religion is man's attempt to please God through works measured by, this is important, measured by how well do I stack up to the guy next to me? So it's all—it's very external. I'm trying to please God by what I do, trying to make you think that I'm Pleasing to God, and it's measured by how well I stack up next to you. The, the picture of that scripturally would be the, the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, right? The tax collector is praying and saying, God, you know, I'm a sinner. Change me. And the Pharisee stand next and saying, God, thank you that I'm not like that guy, right? That's religion. At least in the way I'm defining it here. Christianity says through the gospel, no, God appeases Himself. He appeases His own wrath through the sacrificial death of His holy, righteous Son on your behalf. By grace, He applies that payment, Jesus' death, to you, to your account. Therefore, your position before God is measured not by how righteous you are, but rather by how righteous Jesus is. And by faith, His righteousness is appropriated to you. And that makes for a very humble understanding of your position before God. It's a, it's a very secure one, but it has no room for pride. Religion drives me to deceive myself into to believing that I'm better than I really am. That's how I feel secure in my relationship with God. It's not a very good security. Because you fail, and then you know it, and then you feel like you have no security. That's a, that's a horrible roller coaster to be on. But that's a very different thing than the gospel. True Christianity, a, a sincere Christianity, says this. I'm the greatest sinner I know. And Jesus is a wonderful Savior. I'm the greatest sinner I know. And that's a a very true thing to say. If you can say that in humility as a believer, that's a very true thing to say. You say, well, Hitler was a greater sinner than me. You're the greatest sinner you know. You know, you know why that's true? Cuz you know every thought, every action, you know yourself. And if you were able to tabulate all those things that you know about yourself, it would bury you. You're the greatest sinner you know. But Jesus is a wonderful savior who's taken all of that from you and nailed it to the cross. That's, that's what a Christian can say and should say. That's sincere faith. And so Paul is saying, look, I don't want you to forget that. I'm praying that, that, that you won't forget that. I'm praying that you would be blameless. I'm praying that you would be sincere. I want you to grow in, in your holiness here, right? I don't want you to see you have this, this hypocrisy around you. Blameless, growing in this sincerity. Being a people who remember that you're righteous because of Jesus. And that's it. But it's by grace and it's through faith and you have all that. I want you to be a church that values sincere faith without hypocrisy over a religion. That's the kind of church that is attractive. Because that's the kind of church that's more relational, that's the kind of church that's safe. That's the kind of church that cares more about God's glory and the good of others than the interest of self. That's a very different kind of authenticity than just, I love Jesus, but I'm like this, and I'm just being real with you. Right? It's a kind of, it's kind of faith that says, I love Jesus, and yeah, though I'm still like this, He's making me new. He's a good Savior. He offers grace. He's so good. Come and participate in this with me. And the benefit of having that relational ministry, that safer ministry, that that non-hypocrisy relate, uh, ministry, is that it encourages us to go to people and not just wait for them to come to us. You know, we have a mission statement as a church. It's on our website. It's in our church constitution. Here's our, here's our mission statement. This is what it says about our ultimate ministry purpose. It's to love God and to love others. It's the it's the greatest commandment, right? Coupled with the great commission. Go. Make disciples of all nations, right? And there's that there's that implicit command in there to go. It's that command to, to reflect Jesus. God loved us by going to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. It doesn't say there that God so loved the world that he sat back and waited for us to go to him. Right? Real Christianity compels us to go. Sincere love compels us to go, to aggressively seek after and lovingly pursue those to whom we want to minister because that's the model of Jesus. So let's just... Recap again. Paul's saying, look, here's what I want, church. Here's what I'm praying for in you. Love one another. Grow in love. Grow, grow, grow in your love for one another. Grow in your, your, your real knowledge. Grow in your discernment. Grow in wisdom that sees that it's it's all about Christ, that it's, it's all about the truth of God as He's revealed it to you. Grow in your sincerity. Don't trip up. Don't get stuck in this religious external kind of thing. Continue to be to be available and authentic in the way that you express that love and encourage one another. And he says, finally, two more things, that you do this for the glory of God. This is, he says, to the glory and praise of God. When you look like that church, God gets the praise. When you look like that, God gets all the glory because clearly that kind of a church can only be God's doing. That kind of life transformation can only be only God could accomplish that. You can't do that on your own. If you if you tried, you'd be religious. You'd, You'd end up looking like Pharisees. This is a this is a miraculous kind of thing that God can do. And when He does it, He gets the glory. We place a high value on loving other people, being filled with Christ through the Word of God, so that we can live out what we're learning. Sincerity over religion. God gets the glory. So remember, what's the grand purpose of God? If you you know Ephesians 1, you know the grand purpose of God is to ultimately unite all things in Jesus Christ, to reconcile all things, to reclaim it all for Jesus to the praise of His glorious grace. And so here's the glimpse that Paul's saying, Look, here's my prayer for you that you become the first fruits of that action. Jesus is reclaiming all things back to himself. You're the first fruits, church. He's reclaiming you. He gets the praise, he gets the glory. That's why he's doing it. So if Paul's praying these things, we could finish with this. Paul actually began with it, I'll end with it. We should commit all of this to prayer. Continually praying, recognizing that only God can produce this in us. What did Paul start with? He says, this I pray. Right? God has to do this work in us. You got to step into it, but God's got to do it. It's a matter of prayer. So you might have noticed that we usually do in the middle of our church service, our Sunday morning service, we usually take a time of corporate prayer. We didn't do that this morning. And the reason we didn't do that yet this morning is because I wanted to save it until now. I could, like Paul, I could say, this, I, this is my prayer for us as a church, Edgewater, and I could end the message with a prayer. But I think the encouragement here for the, for the church is that we would all pray to this end as well. So I want to invite us to do that. Rather than me closing the sermon today with a prayer, I want to invite you to close the sermon today with a prayer. So maybe where you're at, you can just pray silently and ask God to produce in you and to produce in us this kind of authentic, Christ-centered, Bible-directed, loving environment as a church. And maybe God would compel you to pray that out loud for all of us to pray with you. I'm okay with either, all right? But let's do that. Let's bow our heads. And after a short time, I will close us out with an amen. Let's pray.